0: Let's head into Hebrews today, chapter 6. Now, I will say this. Though, suppose somebody, uh, maybe a friend of yours, has come up to you and has said to you, like, look, I need you to know this. You're very immature. You're very immature. There are things that I really would like to talk to you about, things that are important, but you, you are lazy, and in fact, you have not sought any understanding in these things. In fact, you're being, you're being childish. Now, you would probably see those words as a bit of a threat, specifically because we, in this culture, we do not like conflict. And so some of those words would be a threat to us that could harm our relationships, right? We tend to what? We stir away from conflict at all costs. Now, there's a small group of wackos in this crowd here that enjoy conflict with people. And I wanna tell you, you make me very uncomfortable, right? I like you. I need you. You make me uncomfortable to begin with. But we have to take notice of what's happening in this text. This is exactly what our author has done here in chapter six. He has lovingly come to his congregation in confrontation in the first century. And he said, hey, look, you need to grow up. You ought to be teachers by now. And he graciously confronts them. And so this morning, as we pick up chapter 6 again, in verse 9, we're going to sort of hear the back end, the closing remarks of this confrontation as he moves on. And so I want us to notice this. I want us to notice this because I think what makes Christianity so distinct and different from the world, meaning those who don't believe in Christ, is that as followers of Jesus, we have come into relationship with Christ by faith through repentance. Meaning this is that we have come to realize that we don't know what is good, right, and true. In fact, we are self saboteurs, meaning that we deceive ourselves, that we get in our own way. And so essentially what we're saying in our faith is that Jesus, I I need you to live this life for me because I have no idea what I'm doing. I can't out myself and so which means for the people of the cross that confrontation should never be unwelcomed it should never be unwelcome because you 've already admitted by faith that you have no idea what you 're doing right Because if you did know what you were doing, you don't need Jesus. And look, I wish that we had more time to expand on this. Maybe down the road, we'll get a scripture that brings us into this. But I think that we must notice this gentle confrontation by this pastor who calls his people upwards. I want you to notice that he doesn't call them out. I think that we want to call people out, right? He calls them upwards through grace and truth. And I will hopefully have some time in the future, but I think that we have to say, look, confrontation is okay. Conflict is okay. I know you're comfortable with that, but we have to have people in our life that see the things that we don't see. I I don't see well, right? I have some blinders and spots. I'm okay with you confronting me on those things, and we have to be gracious hearers of those things as well. Now, there is an interesting transition here in verse 9. That, I, that if you're with your permission, probably, but well, with not, not seeking your permission at all, I, I want to nerd out a little bit. I'm going to geek out here on verse 9, so bear with me. Now, I have told you last week that I come from a school uh, of belief that once you are saved, you're always saved. We talked about last week this question of can one lose Salvation, And I said that I don't believe that if somebody tastes the goodness of God and understands the worth of Christ and the folly of themselves, that they really could ever walk away from him. But I say this in great gentleness, because I know that there are great many that disagree with me, that are faithful people that believe that you can have salvation and you can gain it, but you also, also can lose it. And so I think it is quite okay for us to degree, disagree in this area and still have unity as believers. But what I want us to do today is notice the contents and the structure of verse 9, not, not to prove that I'm right in what I believe, which I think it does, okay? I'm just going to lay that out there. Uh, But more so because I think there's a wonderful truth here for us today. And so will you join me in prayer, and then we'll jump into this. And so, Father, we thank you. Uh, For bringing us here, that you've drawn our hearts towards you, that you've taken the heart of stone and you've made it a heart of flesh. And Jesus, we're thankful for you today that you are the propitiation for our sins, that you are the atonements for our sins, that we have grace and forgiveness in you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for all the ways that we've not honored you this week, that we've not imaged you into this world well, and we just delight in your grace and your mercy today. And Holy Spirit, we pray today that you would come and make these words alive that you would reveal them into our hearts, that you bring gladness and convictions where you want it to be. And so we trust in you, God, today. And we pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, it's interesting that after talking with people who have fallen away from salvation, seemingly, the author writes this in verse nine here in chapter six. He says this, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. Now, my speculation has been that Hebrews 6 is not talking, uh, specifically verses 4 through 8, is not talking about real, authentic believers falling away, but a group of people called the apostates, people who've come to faith in Jesus, not because of his truth, but because of some religious experience or emotionalism or tradition. There really has never been a new birth in their life. There's never been a real repentance in their life. And so there are three reasons in verse 9 that I I believe that to be true. And the first thing is I I want you to notice the way that the author talks to this little church. If it were a possibility for this little church in this day to lose their salvation, why would he say to them, hey, though we speak to you in this way, yet in your case, beloved, what a great phrase, beloved, right? Right? we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. If he believed that these people were going to backslide, that they could fall away from their faith, do you think that he would have said that? Or would he have said something more like this? Not yet, but would he have said, and if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you're going to walk into the same trap. But he doesn't say that. He says, yet, not in your case, beloved. We are sure of better things. Now, secondly, the second nerding evidence that I have here today is as we look at verse nine. There is an interesting use of pronouns that we see in here, and. It, Pronouns in verses four through eight, and then again in our verses nine through 12 specifically. I don't want to notice those for our time, so I'm going to put verses four through seven on the board here today. And I, want to, I just want you to notice this. He says, For it is impossible, we remember this from last week, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, I want you to notice the verse that we just read in verse 9, and what kind of pronouns do we see? We see you and we. And so, what we can take from this is that the author is talking to two distinct groups them, those, they, and you. Yet, for you, this is not the case. And the third nerding evidence that I have in this is this interesting phrase that we have right here at the end. It says this, that we have better things in mind for you, things that belong to salvation. That's an interesting thing. Better things we have in mind for you, things that belong to your salvation. Now, if my mom, when I was a child, had come to me and said, look, I've got better things in mind for you, things that belong to your brother— the first thing that would have come to my mind would be I'm gonna go take his micro machines and his Teddy Ruxpin doll because those are the best things that he owns, right? Nobody knows what a Teddy Ruxpin doll in here It probably is, but it was literally something that I esteemed greatly as a child. Those would be my best things that I could think that my brother owned. He possessed them, and to get them, what did I have to do? I had to go to my brother to get them. Now, who or what possesses the better things in this verse? salvation. The better things that belong to salvation, which means that, that the, the group that he just mentioned that had fallen away, if they were enlightened and tasted and shared in the goodness of God, if they, they experienced all of those things, but what didn't they have? The better things that belong to salvation. And so what the author has in mind is he doesn't want his people just to simply be enlightened. He doesn't want them simply to taste. He doesn't simply want them to share. He wants better things. And what are those things? The things that belong to salvation. And so we get to ask a couple questions today. What are those better things? And the second question is, is why is he so sure that they will come into these better things? And so let's pick up here in verse 10. He says, for God is not unjust... So, as to overlook your work and to love and the love that you have shown his name in serving the saints as you still do. Our writer doesn't have this, like, oh, I've got a great instinct. i got a gut feeling here that you guys are going to hang in here. Like, it's not some feeling. It's a sure belief. And that sure belief has to do with the genuine nature of faith that he sees in his people. There is an evidence to their faith, a fruit that comes with salvation in their life. And so there are three fruits that our author brings to us. And what I want you to notice here, and I think this is important, that you notice the things that he talks about in this passage are not things that come from us from the outside and then go inward, but they are things that come from the inside and go outward. Where things like enlightenment, that is a knowledge that comes from the outside in. Where tasting is something that comes from the outside in. Where sharing comes from the outside in. These are things, the fruit of salvation are things that move from the inward outward, from the heart into our actions and into our lives. And so what are the fruits that are... Our author sees in his people. He says that God sees their work. Now, God is not unjust, he says, to overlook your work. Now, he's not talking about works that earn their salvation. He's talking about works that are developed by the Holy Spirit through through his grace and our understanding of his generosity. We remember the brother of Jesus, the brother of Jesus is James, and he writes a letter, and in that letter he says this pretty famous phrase that faith without works is is dead. Faith or works don't save us, but f- we have a faith that works. And if, if there isn't a change in our lifestyle, if there's not a change in our behavior, there's not a change in our attitude because of what we believe about Jesus, it reveals to us that we have unbelief in our life. The second evidence is that they lo- the love that they show for his name, their love for God is evident to those who encounter them. And that love has been expressed by another fruit, an evidence in serving the saints. This little church we remember in this day There are missionaries going abroad from place to place, bringing different segments of letters and epistles and truths and words to these churches, and they are receiving God's workers. They are caring for them. They're housing them. They're praying over them. They're ministering to them. They're feeding them. They're encouraging them. They're serving the saints. This is where we get the word deacon from, actually. And so these people are committed to serving the people of God. And the author says, because we see these things because we see these things, we know that there's salvation in you. Their belief had moved from their inside to their actions into their lifestyle. They're rooted, right? And so what are the better things, the things that belong to salvation? What is he talking about? Well, we're going to find those here in verse 11 and the following. The author writes, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnest to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So the better things that belong to salvation are these, the full assurance of hope until the end and of faith and patience towards inheriting the promises of God. Look, I know that all of us struggle in this life with all the what-ifs of life. What if this doesn't happen? What if they do this? What if they don't do this? What if this happens to my life? Every moment of our life is a potential moment that could be filled with worry and fear. Fear and worry over what's gonna happen next. Fear and worry over our offspring. Fear and worry over our, our family, over our careers, over our finances. But the joy of salvation, the better things of salvation is that we have every reason, every good reason, friend, to believe that God will hold us fast until the end. That we have all the confidence in the world that our struggles will be momentary in light compared to the weight of eternity. That we can face every situation, every day, every season resting with great assurance that the circumstances of my life are no match for the promises that we are to set to inherit by faith through Christ. I love what this English theologian, Isaac Watt, I love English theologians, the older the better, in my opinion. And in the 1600s, he says this. He says, I believe the promise of God enough to venture an eternity on them. He's saying, I'm going to gamble it all, believing in the promises of God. Now, the sluggishness that our author is referring to here is of one who is constantly evaluating again God's character and his plan, who's consistently doubting. It's the one who is tossed to and fro by the storms of life, hoping which is more like wishing that God would intervene, hoping more like wishing that our struggles would not be in vain. And all the while, they're picking up the elementary truths, the elementary doctrines of faith and questioning them. Does God forgive me? Does he love me? Is he righteous? Can he save me? Can he keep me? Will he forgive me? Questioning these over and over again. And so this pastor is saying to his first century church that is storm-tossed and in trouble. He says, don't be sluggish, don't be lethargic, but endure with great assurance. Have a supreme confidence that the God who is with you is going to keep you. Trust him, trust his promises, and not yourself and not the world. And he reminds us here, he reminds us to imitate those who have gone before us, those who have gone before us that have fought the fight of faith and have remained faithful. Now I'm careful, very careful in bringing this idea of imitation in here because imitation probably means a little bit different, something different than what we believe it to. When God says be an imitator of those who persevered, he is saying not to idolize them and try to be like him. Uh, We create an undue amount of stress and regret and melancholy in our lives when we try to live the life of another person. That is on this earth. If we're, we try to do what they did and live as they did and, and talk as they talk, the idea of imitation here isn't impersonation. I want you to understand that. It is not to be an impersonator. Many of us in this life are dissatisfied with our lot in life. Many of us in this life are dissatisfied with our makeup. Many of us in this life are dissatisfied with our abilities. But we remind ourselves today that God has never once made an accident. And in this passage, he's not telling you to be like somebody else. To be an imitator here is to be one who can look past the person of Abraham and to see the God that sustains him and keeps him. It's to look at the character and the faithfulness of the God who secures him and keeps him. And it encourages us to imitate Abraham in his endurance and patience in the light of the God that he so trusts and believes in, right? And so as we pick up, let's pick up here in verse 13. He says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no, greater by, no one greater to, by to whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is finally final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so the promise that our author zeroes in on here about Abraham is the promise that God gives to him that his offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, that his offspring would fill the earth. Now, on what grounds, what grounds did Abraham believe that God would deliver on his promise? Now, to explain that, I want you to imagine a time before the digital world, a time long before people carried identification, long before identification was even required. There were no fingerprint records. There were no credit card databases. There were no DNA testing. There was no phones or cameras. These are the days of Abraham. These are the days of Abraham. And so in that day, How would you ever know if somebody's going to fulfill their promises? How do you know that if somebody makes an agreement with you that they're ever going to come back? Why wouldn't they just disappear? There's no way to hold them accountable. And so what people would do in that time is they would swear to a greater authority. And so somebody might say, hey, look, I'm promise I promise I'm going to return your sickle. I'm going to return your sickle, and I guarantee I promise it on the throne and the altar of Baal. And you would say to yourself, oh, they just, they just swore on their God. And so if they don't return it, then they're subjected to the judgment of their God. And so you might feel a little bit more confident that they're going to return it. You can imagine this by thinking about your days as a child. Or maybe in elementary school, you said to a friend, hey, look, I'm not going to tell the teacher what I just saw. And he's going to say to you, like, well, how do I know? How do I know that you're not going to... And you're going to say, I swear on my mother's life, right? And then he's going to go, whoa, this guy would rather see his mom die than tell my secrets. And he would probably feel rest assured. This is what's what's happening. They're, They're appealing to a greater authority. And so what assurance does Abraham God have that God is going to deliver on his promise? The scripture says there are two unchangeable things. And what are those two unchangeable things? The God's character and His Word. The God is holy. And he cannot lie. That God is perfect and not void of any fault. He is not deformed in any way. In fact, in this very moment in the cosmos, there are angels in the presence of God who are simply saying over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. In this moment, God's holiness is reverberating in the cosmos through his angels' song. And so what that means for us Right? For us who stumble in this world, is that we can rest in God, not with some weak encouragement. that like, God's gonna, he may fulfill his promises. Not some normal encouragement that God, hey, he's probably gonna do this. But the scripture says that we can rest with a strong encouragement. And this word strong in Hebrews is corros. Is and that word dignifies a sure thing. It is to be powerful and mighty, that we have a sure encouragement to hold fast by, knowing that God will deliver, that he will be faithful, because he cannot be anything else. He has to be faithful. It is impossible for him not to. And so let's look at the end of this chapter here, verses 19 and 20. He says, we we have this a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner places beyond, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, sometimes, look, sometimes it can, can be communicated within the Christian faith that the promises of God for his people are something that we have to recognize and something that we have to claim. There are people who believe that there are promises out there that will go unfilled in our lives that if we don't, if based upon our ability to recognize them and claim them. Maybe you've heard somebody say, name it and claim it. Maybe you've heard that, idea before they might say hey look God has promised to bless you and so what you need to do is you need to name the blessing that you want God to bless you with in life you name it and you claim it and I guarantee this God is going to do it in your life name it and claim it and so look I think that there is a real problem with that idea Surprisingly, I think there's a real problem with that idea because it means a few things. It means that God's promises are only in play, first, if I know about them, secondly, if I'm smart enough to remember them, and thirdly, it means that those promises are thus unlocked by my belief in them. And I believe that all of those ideas are wicked and they're unbiblical. Our writer refers to the hope that comes from God as a sure and steadfast anchor, which means, which means this, we don't claim the promises of God as if there's some luggage that we're trying to find at the airport. No, rather, the promises of God claim us they claim us, they anchor us. Whether we recognize those promises has no fruition on whether they're real and true and happening. God's promises are true simply because of his character and his word, not our word, not our belief and our ability to remember those things because it's not up to us. And so what this means for us is that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our happenings and situations in our life, that God's promises for us will be most assuredly realized. Whether we feel like it or not, they are an anchor that we can rest on. They hold us. Like, you don't need an anchor in smooth seas. You need an anchor when life is rough, when the seas are rough. And God promises to hold us who journey in this broken world through a broken self, that he's going to hold us, that he's going to keep us, and he's going to save us, right? But more than just God's holiness in his word, do we stand on these things? But we realize that God has proven even more, to a greater degree, his faithfulness to us, because he has sent the Son. He has sent the Son to prove in action that we can rest and be faithful to God. We can trust in him. Jesus has come as the representation of man. He is the title, the son of man. And he has come into the world, as this scripture says, as the great high priest, meaning that he has made a once and forever atonement for sin on our behalf. He represents us in front of God. His sacrifice brings to us righteousness. But this scripture reminds us of something even greater than that. Now there's this interesting shadowy figure named Melchizedek. And maybe you're thinking about, I'm gonna if I have a child, Mikilzadek is on the short list. And I would say we need a Mikilzadek in our church. That would be awesome. But basically, Mikilzadek is this shadowy figure that is both a priest and a king. And there is nobody that has ever walked this earth that has both been a priest. And a king, and so what our author is saying to is, look, Jesus is one who's in the order of Melchizedek, meaning this is not only does he make an atonement for our sins, but he's our king. And he leads us, he guides us, and he protects us. And what that brings to us is that Jesus doesn't just bring us forgiveness by grace, but he is the king that ushers us into the very throne room of God. He goes before us and he stays with us. And so look, why does all of this matter? Why does it it matter at all that we with confidence simply rest in the promises of God, that we devote our lives to being just simply faithful to the one that has been faithful to us? Why does any of this matter? What matters, because I believe that there is a deep joy that comes with knowing our God has found us, not by our own ability, but through his plan, and that he sees us And he knows us and he loves us and he keeps us. I think there is a great joy in just resting in that truth. But I think this: I think that there is a great majority of believers who struggle with fear that they are not good enough. Or that at any moment that God might disapprove of them. You know, I heard of a friend. No, not I heard of a friend. I have a friend. And maybe that is a comfort to you that I have friends. I have a friend. And he told me about a dream, and it was a happy dream. And I'm going to get crazy here, okay? He told me about a happy dream, and this was his happy dream. His dream was him falling accidentally off a cliff. And the moment before he died, he had a chance to ask for forgiveness for his sins. Now, why in the world would that be a happy dream, you ask? Because during his childhood... He was raised to believe that all sin must be specifically confessed before God. And if you didn't confess your sin before God, there was no way that God could ever forgive that. It is a simplistic understanding of sin and a reductive understanding of a verse that says, if we are faithful to to confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us. It comes from a simplified understanding of sin Uh, that is not, is something that we do and not the condition of our soul. And so we've said this many times here. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It is our condition. And that simplistic understanding of sin has created, and I will not mince my words here, friends, has created through the insecurity of self-righteous people who would rather teach the world of their virtue and goodness, a weight and anxiety on the people of God, instead of humbly pointing them to a beaten savior that is the adequate and sufficient propitiation for our sins. And so I want you to understand in here today that you can rest in Jesus. And look, don't don't understand this in a way that I'm saying that we are free to sin by any means, but there is a large percentage of people who have said to me, I hope that I've done enough for God. I hope that I don't disappoint him. Now there is a beauty in the humility of coming in front of God with a proper position, knowing our worth in front of him, knowing our position in front of him. But friends, Jesus did not deliver us from the bondage of the Old Testament law to then put us into another bondage of works by salvation or salvation by works in his new covenant. Christ has brought to us freedom through grace, not to sin anytime we want to, but through his love and his grace, he has given us the freedom to not sin. Because here's the thing, you didn't have a choice before you met Jesus. So let the promises of God be a strong encouragement to your soul, that he, that you, that you, that he holds you, that he claims you, that he keeps you. You can persevere with a joy and not believe it like i 'm doing enough, but simply by resting in the character and the goodness and the sacrifice of Christ, the only sufficient solution that serves us and saves us and holds us friends you don 't need anything else because if all you ever had in this world was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in your faith and belief in him, you would have far more than you will ever need to thrive and flourish in this life. Let us hold fast to his promises with strong encouragement that he will not leave us or forsake us today.